missing connection to science night. Please stand by. Welcome back to another edition of the Science Night Podcast. My name is James, and with me, as always, is Steffi. Hey. And Jason. Hello. We also have a special guest host. Welcome back to the show, our favorite anatomical illustrator. And, you know, probably tied for my favorite anatomist with every other anatomist I know, including myself, and every member of the American Association for Anatomy, Dr. Yasmin Metzl. Thank you so much for such a grand introduction. <laughs> you know, we, we try to make everyone feel special, and Jason, I included you in my list of favorites. You were tied for first, just with everybody else. <laughs> I appreciate that. I do. There we go. So... It's been a little while since we've done a regular episode. You know, we had that wonderful Halloween special that if you didn't listen to it, you should go back and do that right now. And that means there's been a lot of sigh that we just didn't come. And if we don't talk about it, does it even really happen? So tonight, we're just supersizing the new segment and bringing you a good old SciCom roundup. So let's get into the news. So before we get started, I'm going to start with this quick Science Night headline. So if you've been following space news like I have, the Artemis program is NASA's bold vision to get humans back on the surface of the move. And over a series of launches, an orbiting gateway section and permanent surface base will allow astronauts to spend more time and conduct more research on the moon's surface. It even has the potential to serve as a staging area for manned missions to Mars. Unfortunately, that bold vision has had a little bit of difficulty getting off the ground. We've had bad weather, we've had damaged sensors, and all of this has caused a series of delays. But as of 10 a.m. on November 15th, 2022, it looks like we'll be clear for launch tomorrow morning on Wednesday the 16th at 1.22 a.m. So, fingers crossed that we get that green light. Dear listeners, if you're in the United States of America, the one thing that you cannot get enough of right now are poll results. So we have a story tailor-made for, for you. The main reason that the Science Night podcast started was to make scientists and science more approachable and help people engage with it. And according to a recent Pew Research headline, we've done it! So on behalf of everyone of the Science Night podcast, you're welcome. Really what the numbers suggest is that based on a 2021 poll, Americans are slightly more interested in reading and talking about science. However, if you dig a little deeper, you see that, as in all things, America is incredibly divided on this subject. So what do we think? Mission accomplished or we got a little bit more work to do? Um, a lot more work to do. <laughs> a lot more yeah. work to do. I, there were some really interesting numbers in here. For example, in the data about Americans and uh, what they say about whether they can rely on experts for science information, 36% of U.S. adults said that they can rely on experts a lot. Only 36% said they could rely on experts a lot. That's a problem. But also, how do we define experts? Because the next highest percentage of folks that the majority of Americans say they can rely on 
is close family and friends. That's above journalists. So it goes from 36% say a, a lot, they can rely on experts. 9% say they can rely on close friends and family a lot. 7% say they can rely on journalists a lot. So we've spent a lot of time talking about the importance of conveying science to journalists, but also to the public, but to journalists or to the public through journalists, right? We've said on this podcast a number of times, if we don't talk to the journalists ourselves, if we don't get people talking about their science with journalists, then the journalists are going to come up with their own way to spin the results. Americans are interested. And also it's you know critical to our technology and our health, every parts of every sector. So if we don't talk about our work with journalists, the journalists are going to have to come up with a way to spin that work uh, and explain that work. You know, don't you want to have a seat at the table? The thing that made me a little bit interested in some of these numbers was the 76% of people that responded. It was frustrating that there's so much political disagreement on yeah. science that mm -hmm. that that is a number that I think we could we could actually like use in our communication to other scientists and to like people engaged in policy. I agree with you. But the really disheartening part of that is that you have to assume that that's roughly divided between two yeah. polarized opinions. And, you know, generally speaking, one of those polarized sides of the political scale in the, this country is anti-science and anti-fact in one direction, right? And the other side is anti-science and anti-fact in a different direction. <laughs> and so it just blows your mind. I pick on both sides. Both sides are guilty of it on the extremes. To me, that's not maybe as, as comforting <laughs> as we want it to be. Oh, I don't know if it's comforting. I just think that that is... Uh... That is something that you can point to of being like, we need more cooperation rather than that's fair. This, this is, uh, this is where we can like bully politicians. I agree with you, but I mean, what, what do we talk about? What is cooperation over scientific data? Right? I mean, there's a difference between sharing scientific data, but like just agreeing that the data are real. Yeah. How do you, where's the disagreement? Take a step back. I'm just going to say, I think that there should be more time spent on, on telling people how the scientific process works and a lot of the failure that goes in. And, you know, you're testing hypotheses, right? Yeah. And it's going to change based on your data. Not only like the way we're getting data, the populations that we are, you know, working with and interacting with to get our data, the instrumentation gets better too. And so sometimes people are like, well, Every time I look at an article, it's changing. I should eat this, but not that anymore. And that is confusing. I mean, that is confusing for right. me. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, science. <laughs> We're always learning. So I think it's kind of bigger than that. About the Great Divide. Wow. I think this is part of the problem with the way academia rewards scientific achievement right? Is that every single study a scientist wants to get out into the public sphere, right? But not every single experiment is noteworthy of a press release. It might just be building on something else. And, you know, you need a several experiments in a row to actually make a major advance, right? To make uh, an advance worthy enough of telling the country, hey, look, something's a little bit different than what we thought before, right? Like, 
that's kind of part of the problem here. So Yasmin, you've you've probably seen that. I mean, no, oh, this is very U.S. centric, right? Yeah. But I want to hear like how you see this too. Yeah. What do you, what do you see in the flames as you watch the nation to your south burn? Or in your own. <laughs> We right, have similar right. flames as well, though. That's I think everything that's being discussed right now is very closely familiar. Um, for example, right now, when I see Facebook, it's become an outlet for everyone to sort of politicize science, depending on their own perspective. And going back to that point of there needs to be a, some kind of collaboration, um, which Steffi made. I, I agree in that sense. And I think that collaboration can also come from keeping people aware of the spread of misinformation. I think that's a key component to why we're seeing a lot of these stats, because it seems to me now that whenever science or any scientific story is introduced to the public, there's this assumption there's a hidden political agenda behind that science. You know, may also stem from the fact that we see scientists as this, you know, cliche people and lab coats in a, in a tower somewhere doing these experiments. They're not really human enough. We don't hear about their failures, like James was saying. I just see it as a big web. And there's just so many things in this web that needs to be untangled so that we can have that sense of clarity. You know, one thing that just struck me as you were talking about the stories of science is like, maybe, maybe that's part of the answer. You know, we've talked to people who talked about combating misinformation. We talked to people who are delivering policy and we've all been trained in communicating science. And the big thing that we get told is like finding the story that can relate to the people you're talking to. So maybe we just got to keep working that angle and uh, relating to the people that we're communicating the science to, and also get a lot more scientists trained up on this whole science communication thing. If only there was a podcast they could come on to practice that skill. That's a good point. I think, uh, I think there is a better understanding of the importance of doing this kind of work amongst scientists now than there was five years ago or 10 years ago. Uh, but we're not there yet. You're right, James, right? But I appreciate your positive spin <laughs> since I've been kind of... Uh, downer here with my perspective today everyone gets their day once once per once per every three days you're allowed that one day you know works we're not saying it's gotta be like a fully good week i'm a philadelphia sports fan i get it <laughs> it's been it's been a bad month and also a great month Come um on. no we don't talk about november here anymore i i want to know more about like the details of the data because it's just like a high level overview but like to dig deep in like the the human part of that, which you can't quantify with data. I guess my hope is that scientists and people like engaged in science communication like us don't see this data and been like, all right, we can, we can cool off and see like, okay, we've been taking this active role in communicating our science in a way that can like move the needle. Let's double down on that and keep going and see what the next five years numbers look like and keep going from there. I think that seems, I haven't seen anything on the Twitter sphere, not even through Twitter blue that says like, okay, science communication is done. We've done it. Mission accomplished. So <laughs> way I, to go. Brownie. We'll be okay. Right? On that. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, that's a good point. You know, there is one other thing that I think is interesting and maybe worth pointing out here about this story. And that is that, the majority of Americans are very interested 
in news about their local community. 38% are very interested. Um, the next highest is mm-hmm. government and politics news and at 28%, and then science news at 27%. So if we're talking about science communication at the local community level, we can affect change. Yeah. And, you know, all politics are local. That's maybe where we need to focus efforts more. What I've found that's interesting, actually, is I will get contacted from reporters from the national outlets, but the local do not. And and so I was talking to the media relations department at my university, and they they said that's that's what they're seeing, too. And and so, I mean, there's this big disconnect that the just the local media outlets, I guess, are more focusing on politics and things that maybe people perceive that directly impact them instead of like the science that is literally like people can come from the neighborhood and walk here and I will give them a tour. <laughs> people who are not seeking out science, they're just going to miss it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we have a similar situation here in Indiana, right? We have excellent engagement with the community that wants engagement, but with the community that part of the community that doesn't want to be engaged, it's not easy to reach. Do you see that too, Yasmin? Absolutely. I think that if you are looking for engagement, you'll find it. But if you're not looking, but it's also just as equally important to you, you might continue about your journey and not really come across sure. it. And, and that's why I think that it has to be done at an educational level. If I can you know, share just a personal experience, we are working on a, a research project where we're asking our students to share their reflections on the project. And so far, of all the amazing things that they're doing, they've done very you know, um, challenging uh, presentations where they share data. Sharing reflections seems to be something challenging. Being able to you know, tie in a way to effectively communicate how you know, they're interpreting their own experience. So I think this speaks a lot to um, how we teach science and how we teach scientists. We try so hard to separate the person from the work that at the, at the end of the line, things like engagements become more challenged. That's fascinating. Now I want to do that in my classes too. What level are you doing this in? So these are um, uh, senior undergraduate students. Yeah. So they yeah. haven't even entered in the realm of academia, like graduate school. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. So it's, in my opinion, it's fairly early to experience these things. But again, when they go through, like Jason was saying earlier, the whole hardcore publication mindset, I think mm-hmm. this sort of conditions them to think that other stuff doesn't really matter anymore. Thank you for sharing that perspective, because yeah. you know I don't teach at yeah. that level at all and so i i like to hear i like to hear that experience right because it just seems in line with everything i'm seeing at different levels i'm going to totally follow up and have more questions for you because i want to put this in my classes too there we go such a great idea okay yeah site science night uh in your in your pedagogical (laughs) publications that's right that's right well i think right now is a good time for a break so We are going to be back in just a minute with more science communication. But first, a message from a podcast I think you will enjoy. Nature, we're part of it. Animals, we're one of them. What can we learn from other species? How can our lives be better by reconnecting with nature? 
and why does it matter at all? That's what Wild Connection, the podcast, is all about. Every week, we bring you authors, filmmakers, scientists, and conservationists whose work is revealing why being connected to nature and wildlife matters. You can find us where you get your podcasts, including iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. We're hosted by Podbean, so you can find us there too. And you can keep up with us on Twitter at WildConnectPod. We've talked about scientific associations, their purpose, and the people involved with them before on this show. But we haven't really covered a meeting before, and that's for a good reason. They are not super approachable, unless you're already involved in that aspect of science. And let's be honest, you can only make a nondescript conference center and ballroom so interesting. But I wanted to cover the recent conference of the Global Science Academies for two reasons. One. It took place in the biosphere, too, which means that I can make biodome jokes for the rest of this segment, and I will, and so will Jason. And number two, because we had someone on the inside, Steffi, you were in the biodome. It was the biosphere, too. No, it's the biodome. It's the biodome. Do you all know what biosphere one is? It's the earth. Yep. It's the earth. I love it. I know. I know. Was Polly Shore there? No. Definitely oh. not. I haven't seen that movie in a long time, and it's probably ridiculously sure. inappropriate. Oh, for sure. I'm sure it does not hold like, up. so bad. There's no way it holds no. up, right? It was no. not good when it came out, but I no. remember it. There's also the, what is it, Spaceship Earth, the documentary that came out recently. There's also Spaceship Earth, the Disney attraction, yeah. which I rode on while you were doing your whole science thing down in Arizona, so... So we have no, it's the documentary about how the Biosphere 2 was constructed, or the Disney ride. Okay, yes. Okay, so I was at a meeting. It was, why I chose the story. at the Biosphere 2, and it was the first ever uh, meeting, a joint meeting of the Global Senior Academies and the Global Young Academies. So I was there as part of the Global Young Academies, specifically the New Voices of NASA, the U.S. one. It was amazing. First of all, I had never been to such a global conference before. And it was, I think there were about 60 of us on site from all different countries. And it was just amazing. We all have something in common, and it's our scholarly research. And I was about to say science, because historically, a lot of the global academies or, you know, the global young academies have been focused on science engineering and medicine but there's some european societies and and um in canada their society too of the young academies brings in the arts which is amazing we need this integration of arts and artists and i'm so glad that they were there because they just make science and scholarly research that we do um, more enriched and we can do a lot more, get better insight. So that was really great. The theme of the conference was inclusive excellence, harnessing knowledge for sustainable societies. So that was like the theme woven throughout. What really stuck out to me was at the global sense, there's a lot of us looking at how can we make science, scholarly research 
more inclusive, break down those barriers, stop the gatekeeping. A lot of people talking about this at the high level, and it's just not trickling down to our institutions, which is very frustrating. Um, I think in the first article, we mentioned things like, maybe we didn't mention this yet, but H-index, the number of times your article has been cited is typically like one of the main metrics we use to say, are you a good researcher? Right. So let's talk about what that H index is for a second. So an H index is uh, the number of papers that you have that are cited that number of times, right? So for example, if you have an, an H index of 25, that means you have 25 in, you know, separate research papers that have been cited at least 25 times. It's a yeah. really strange metric yeah. because it doesn't account for the fact that like maybe a lot of those are self-citations. Or that the system is very biased. There's that too. It's racist, sexist. Um, Correct. And that goes into that whole system as well. Yes. It's like wins above replacement. Yeah. That's yeah. That's for the baseball nerds. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So it's, it's this whole idea of where, you know, people say, well, it's based on merit, which has bias in it not necessarily impact, which has things that you can't exactly measure, how it, something your research impacts society. So I talked about this intersection of science and art. And Yasmin, you do some of this. So can you talk a little bit about how that's a benefit? So I recently started taking some art classes at the School of Fine Arts here, and it continues to amaze me how much intersection there is. You know, every time I think I know about all the intersections, I learn about something new. But one of the things that comes to mind is just that ability to observe. For example, when I, when we teach science to, um, you know, any scientific uh, audience, I think that a lot of it comes down to asking technical questions, getting right to the answer, getting right to the results, but they're active actually observing and interpreting what you're seeing, it seems it's very fast forwarded. Whereas with the arts, it, it teaches you to, for example, understand someone's positionality when they're creating an art piece, understanding the meaning of space. How do they utilize that space? All of these things are terms that we can easily incorporate into the scientific language and actually make a, a more richer experience of understanding the science of what we're doing. Again, there's this other, um, there's this way of producing publications. Now, when I say publications in the art sphere, it's very different. See, now I'm using the word sphere. It's not the same as publications in the scientific realm. Um, they're not so focused on, you know, publishing in, in journals. Something as simple as creating a little paper magazine could be called a publication. Again, it, it gives students that sense of that they're contributing to the world. If they're creating a small little piece, they have this thing called a zine in the arts. So it's pronounced, it's spelled Z-I-N-E, and it's like the second half of the word magazine. They create a zine. It's a collaborative project where they share their reflections on something that they're doing or they're seeing. I'm totally incorporating this into my science curriculum, by the way. But it becomes this collaborative piece where they start sharing their perspectives on something, and it can be either written or drawn. But the beauty of this is it teaches them to work together and leave something behind, not just for them to validate their experiences, but for others to follow, to understand the challenges that they experience, how they're able to overcome these challenges. That little zine, it becomes called publication. So 
there's so much that can be incorporated into the arts that can make scientists more observant of their surroundings and the people that they interact with, I think. I'm making note of this. I absolutely want to follow up with you on how the implication, like the inclusion of zines into into your teaching works, because it is such a low stakes way to bridge the science and art gap because you don't need like a ton of experience or technology or anything. The beauty of the zine is that it is very DIY and anyone who's like been involved in the punk scene knows how easily you can create a zine and distribute to a lot of people. So I love, I love this so much. It has such a history too, which is, you know, it's nice for that continuity, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes you seem cool. I, love it. <laughs> I think it would be a wasted opportunity if I didn't point out that zine removes the MAGA part of magazine. Even better. Mm-hmm. Double wins. Salt. <laughs> I mean, that's probably better than the Biodome joke, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. We also, so that was the heart of the conference. Um, and it was woven throughout. There were a lot of different sessions exploring different aspects of that. So it was really eye opening. They should be releasing a report with more details of like the discussions and the initiatives going forward. I know just based on what uh, interaction I had with the Global Young Academies, I'm going to reach out to them because in some countries they were successful when they had like a smaller pool of, of universities at being more creative about how they assess um, research criteria and things like that without using just metrics on like H index. So I have a lot of follow up. So it's pretty exciting. And we got to tour the biosphere too, which was fascinating. <laughs> I mean, they have an ocean in there. They have mangroves. Yeah, I saw a picture of you at the ocean. I saw that yeah. on social media. Yeah. And the love. Yes. That was so cool. The lungs were wild. So if you have, so originally it was built to be completely sealed, self-contained environment. And when you have that sun shining in a biosphere, you have to alleviate air pressure because some of it heats up and it, you know, equilibrates. So they had this lung where there's this tunnel that, you know, air would rush down and exert its pressure on a lung to raise it. And so we got to actually see it when they change the air pressure like lower and you're like, this is so wild. It was massive. And then we got to feel the wind tunnel from that. And then, I mean, they have a whole infrastructure underneath it on running the ocean. Cause you can vary, um, you know, the pH to very precise levels and the temperatures so that they can simulate things like what happens if our temperature rises so much in the oceans. The other things that the experiments that they were doing, Um, were things on carbon sequestration. So they have a couple areas like the oceans and the mangrove areas where they, you know, created a wall around those specific areas and they pumped it full of CO2 and they could bury sensors and see um, how far the CO2 penetrated. So so that was, it was amazing. And this is now run by University of Arizona, correct? Yeah. The biosphere too? It has different origins though, doesn't it? Occult. Started yeah. by cult, essentially. Yeah, like good things. Lots of things out in the Arizona desert are. Right? right? Yeah. You know, it all starts with one man having a dream, or one person having a dream. and then... Usually one man. You're right. Ugh. Usually one man who exerts his power over less fortunate folks. Exactly. Yikes. And then you get this experimental prototype community of tomorrow. 
in the, let's call it Epcot. <laughs> I was going to say, or whatever is happening to Twitter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Talk about a walled garden, right? <laughs> I really liked your comment about like breaking down walls uh, at this conference. It really reminded me of when Polly Shore broke down the walls to the biodome and uh, they had that real big party. It taught them all how to rebuild this environment and really brought the team together. And I think we should all celebrate that. Please, please find a clip of him doing the weasel and put it in here in a transition somewhere. We're definitely going to do that. This is is predetermined, right? Like as soon as I wrote bio, it was done. (laughs) (laughs) Uh Uh-uh, I'm a weasel. So I love that we talked about a global conference that was trying to knock down those barriers between science and art because our last story is about a new exhibition at the Dishman Art Museum at Lamar University in Beaumont, Texas. It's called Crystal Realities to Artificial Intelligence, colon, Multidisciplinary Explorations in Photography, and the artists involved are trying to show the creativity of science by having the longest title to an exhibition ever and using the discipline of art to do that. And they're also refusing to draw a line between the two. And if it seems like I'm reading the homepage for this exhibition, I absolutely am. But that doesn't mean that you should listen to us talk about this story because I thought this would be the perfect thing to bring Yasmin and her ability as an artist and scientist to talk about this new approach to showing art and science to the world, or at least to Beaumont, Texas. This was a really nice article to read. It just, you know, when you read something and you're just starting to see that you're smiling and it just gets bigger and bigger. This is how I felt reading this article and even going through the pictures. There was that one particular piece where I believe the artist was um, depicting the beauty of nature and then they also had a brain scan. And I just thought that was genius. The way that they had the silhouettes of it, I think it was a tree and then the, the scan was at the front. I thought to myself, oh, this is, I'm trying to see, you know, what am I looking at here? And I caught myself thinking that way because it reflects how we have a difficulty with appreciating the two at the same time. You know, it's being able to see that, that, that naturalistic perspective alongside something that's get more objective sure. information. I just, I loved it. And when I, when I had that epiphany, I loved it even more. So it's a great piece. You know, that's interesting. You know, this is, we're talking about this as an exhibition to the public to show the combination of art and science. But I'm wondering too, if it is way more useful for scientists to go and engage with this exhibition and realize that there is not always the answer lying behind the thing that they're viewing and they can just kind of appreciate the things that are going into it and how it's blending two disciplines rather than trying to figure out what it is. I think so. I think that the beauty of this for teaching scientists is it continues to remind you of the big picture. It also speaks to what we were talking about earlier, the process of failure. So I think it was the last story, not that failure was explicitly mentioned, but um, it was with... um, Liz Hickok. Yes. So her experience of first creating sculptures with jello and then 
moving on to creating sculptures with those little crystals that expand. I think that, you know, from a scientist's point of view, we're always finding ways or looking for ways to troubleshoot and optimize. And um, I think when we're approaching that troubleshooting, again, we're, we're doing it from a, um, a very objective standpoint, trying to make sure that we're getting as accurate as possible. But there's also something to appreciate from that troubleshooting, right? The, the act of trying to use different modalities or using different approaches. I think very oftentimes that, again, just gets swapped away and we're just so fixated on the, the details. So I think there's so much you can learn when you can actually see that other disciplines actually make an art out of this. Other mm. disciplines actually make an art of troubleshooting. You can actually see it and appreciate it with your own eyes. Yeah, I mean, that's all reinforced by the publication culture, which is that you don't publish negative results, right? I mean, journals don't want to do that because it's not exciting and it's not going to have an impact. And so they're not, it's not going to help them raise their impact factors in their journals, um, which is the metric that publishers care about more than anything else, right? Not even necessarily engagement or downloads, but you know, how prestigious is the journal amongst other journals in comparison to other journals. So the fact that science doesn't readily show the troubleshooting side of things, um, but could learn from art about the importance of seeing it speaks volumes to the need for artists and scientists to be in the same room with each other and talking and interacting because you know both fields both realms if you will as you said earlier yasmin they'll benefit from each other more than they will benefit from being in silos and i think the big the biggest beneficiary to de-siloing in general, but specifically in this aspect, is the boon to science communication when we can have artists and science working together to convey these abstract thoughts. Like if you have your science night bingo card out, I say this every time there's art involved in this podcast, but, you know, conveying science in the way that the people are going to understand it is the name of the game. And if we can have like all these tools in our toolbox, it becomes a much easier job to do. So again, like if you're on the fence about blending science and art, get off that fence. It's not fun to sit on fences anyway. What are you doing? Get to blending, man. All the years combine, they melt into a dream, right? As the Grateful Dad said, Stella Blue. If I can add also another point with Please do. <laughs> it's honestly, I just don't have enough uh, knowledge of sometimes the references that are being used. So that is the only reason why I don't know how much to contribute, but I'm loving it. I'm, I'm still loving it very much. But one thing I wanted to add, uh, the amazing thing about using art is art has that powerful ability to bring very important concepts forward without explicitly saying it. Mm. So if I can think back right now in the science community, there's so much emphasis on EDI, right? Rightfully so. Bringing in that knowledge to ensure that there is equity um, across everyone. And sometimes the more you read these papers, the more robotic they sound, at least in my perspective, a lot of these mm -hmm. papers, because from what I'm seeing, a lot of people are referring to what others have done. What have others said? What is the language that others have used to ensure that we sound equitable? Now, even when you look at applications for grants, they ask you have to submit an ADI statement. And there are templates floating out there so that people can just use whatever is being written without actually giving it thought. What does it mean to have an, an agenda based on ADI? 
right? Mm -hmm. The amazing thing about art is that you can have these subtle cues with powerful messages that will bring these messages, that will bring the concepts of, if you're looking for an EDI, for example, forward, right? And I think that if scientists and artists collaborate, there can be more exploration of what those cues can look like. What can scientists continue doing to further push that inclusiveness forward, aside from just, you know, saying it verbatim, right? I think that's one of the nice things about art is that it's a very powerful medium and we can talk for a long time about how powerful it is. I mean, we should do that for an entire show, right? Like <laughs> this, this script writing itself at this point. Um, so stay, stay tuned for that in the future of the Science Night podcast. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just glad that we had you on when we found this story, you know, like for people looking behind the scenes, I found the story first and then I emailed Yasmin because I'm like, I, I think we could benefit from a different voice on this specific thing. So thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, today. He's seen my art. He knows, you know, <laughs> same here. <laughs> I can, this I is can... why I just, it's, a, you know, art, it's subjective, right? It's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you might not think what you're doing is art, but someone else, it is artwork. No, so mine is subjectively terrible. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> my mom thinks my art's great. Like, I got a fridge full of James Reed originals down in Pennsylvania. I get it. Uh, yeah. I get it. We have uh, one of my, my youngest, actually, we have uh, uh, some coffee mugs that he painted. Um, it's a painting of coffee mugs, like with coffee on it, two of them, um, that he painted in third grade. It's hanging in our kitchen because it's just so beautiful. There you go. Third grader. It's great. He didn't get his talent from me. <laughs> actually, he doesn't have that talent anymore. He'd be the first one to tell you. <laughs> so it was a one and done, I think, but it was beautiful and we love it. And it's hanging in our kitchen. Well, you know, if you're a scientist or anyone who's on the fence about trying art, I feel like the talent comes from just doing it, right? Just, yeah. that's right. Just that's trying. Right. Art makes you reflect on anything, anything at all. It's good art. It's good. Even if it makes you reflect on how bad of an artist you are, it's good art. You know, speaking about reflecting on art, I think this this uh episode has now become like one of our more artistic interpretations of the communication of science through the vocal media uh yasmin thank you so much for coming on to this you are welcome back anytime you know I, some might argue that you'd probably do better fill in my seat than myself but we don't listen to those I people i wouldn't argue that we don't listen think, to uh, those people i think yasmin would uh, occupy an excellent fourth seat that's all i'm saying yeah you know mm -hmm. I'm just saying. Not like, your seat, though. Not your seat, James. No, no, no. this we is a never-expanding seat universe, right? If, that's right. That's right. If I learn one thing from the movie Biodome, is that everyone is welcomed at the table, and that table becomes more vibrant because of those additions. You have come to the end of another edition of the Science Night Podcast, but don't worry, we got plenty more coming your way. Why not follow us on social media so you'll never miss a thing? You can follow me on Twitter, where I am and will always remain unverified, at James underscore read three. Steffi, where can everybody find you? Uh, for now... You can follow me on Twitter at Steffi Deem until, I don't know, it implodes, creates a black hole, it goes into an abyss of nothing. 
And then you can follow me on Instagram as well at Starshipin. Jason, where can everybody find you? I guess you can still find me on Twitter at OrganJM. And Yasmin, we've saved the best for last. Tell us where we can find and follow the things that you are doing out on the internet. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, my Insta or my Twitter handle is not as exciting as James Organ is, but um, it's YM Anatomy. And uh, I try my best to be, you know, pretty active, but I have to say it's it's more of a roller coaster. So if you want to <laughs> join me on the ride, by all means, follow me there. And it's the same handle for Instagram as well, YM Anatomy. Speaking of roller coasters, you can follow the show at Pod. Make sure you subscribe to the show and rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. And check out our home on the web at SciNight.com for all of our past episodes, links to the stories that we talk about and the people that we talk to, and of course, our merch. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode, but until then, have a great night. The Science Night Podcast is a proud member of the River Power Podcast Mill. To find out more about our shows, go to riverpower.xyz. I don't know how anyone can go and not become broke. I went to a conference in Florida not too long ago. We didn't even go to Disney World. We went to the other one, Disney. That's right, the other one. You listen to that Universal, (laughs) Universal. the other one. That's right. (laughs)